And uh, those of us who are uh, uh, watching this online or maybe you're listening by podcast, it's great to have you. I'm thrilled to have you guys here today. Uh, I'm very excited because we're, we're starting a brand new series. I always get excited, excited at the beginning of a series. And today we are starting a series for the month of April called FAQ. And this is where we are going to answer uh, some of the most frequently asked questions that uh, people are asking. Uh, we hear people asking about God, about Christianity, about church, all kinds of things like that. And last week, many of you, you know, submitted your, your questions uh, that you've always had or you've had in mind, or maybe there were questions that people ask you, people around the workplace or at school or in the neighborhood, people ask you. And so uh, I loved reading the questions. Thank you guys so much for your responses. We got so many great responses. Uh, so, many of the, so many of you, are, you guys are brilliant. Some of those questions were really good. Some Others, no, I'm kidding. They were all really, really good. They were all great, great questions. So we are gonna uh, we're gonna tackle some of the biggest ones. Um, and uh, now, just to let you know, this is a continuation, really, of of a of a series we did last year. Same same series we did last year. We spent four weeks last April of 2015 answering these questions. We answered questions such as why uh, does God allow bad things to happen uh, to good people? Uh, why are Christians such hypocrites? That was a really popular one for some reason. I can't imagine why. Um, is God really all-powerful, all-knowing? And we also uh, tackled the uh, issue of unanswered prayer. What's the deal with unanswered prayer? And so if, you have, uh, if you're still curious about those issues, and I know from your questions last week, some of you still are, um, I invite you to go back to the podcast, just pull it up, or you can go to the website and listen to those because they're all right there for you to enjoy. It's from last April 2015. Uh, so do that because we're going to tackle some new things this year. We're going to tackle some other things. Today, we are going to wrestle with one of the most common objections that is often heard uh, when we're living out our faith, especially if you're a disciple making disciples. You're going to come across this objection, Uh, and that is this. Why do Christians say that Jesus is the only way to God? Why do Christians say that Jesus is the only way to get to heaven? Why do we say that? It's one of the most fundamental statements that Christians make, and and certainly to many people is probably one of the most offensive as well. Um, Hey, we live in a world of 1.6 billion Muslims, 1 billion Hindus, about 500 million Buddhists, and about 14 million Jews, plus millions of other people who don't express any faith at all in any God. Uh, So we're living in a world with over 70% of the population does not profess a belief in Christ, 70%. So can we really answer this question with any authority? Can can we really say that Jesus is the only way to God? I mean, Christians, uh, we're saying that we're right and everybody else is wrong, right? And come on, this is 2016. Is that not kind of exclusivist? Um, And and that's the biggest challenge we come up with, up against. Today, I want, to first, I want to first challenge the challenge, if I can. We're going to talk a little philosophy today, so it'll be fun. And then I want to look at Scripture, and we're going to unpack some really beautiful and surprising things there that we find, the things that compel us as believers to go all in for Jesus. So first, this question, this one question. To say that Jesus, here in the year 2016, to say that Jesus is the only way to God, come on, isn't that... Isn't that kind of divisive, right? Is that not rather exclusivist to claim? Yes. Yes, it absolutely is. We don't pretend it isn't. 
It is exclusive to claim that. Today, though, I want to challenge the question itself. I want to challenge the challenge by submitting that we all have exclusivist beliefs. We all do. We all think certain things are right and certain things are wrong. The most open-minded, tolerant person in the world has a very firm set of beliefs inside them of what is right and what is wrong, right? Uh, Even though we try to talk sometimes as if we don't, and and we end up saying things that are logically kind of silly, uh, just to help us get along better. Because I think we're afraid uh, that, that if, to suggest that some beliefs are right and some beliefs are wrong, that somehow we won't be able to get along. But I think there's a maturity that comes along with saying, I actually think there is a right answer and, and that one of us is actually wrong and I can still love you. I can still respect you. We can still be friends. We can still dialogue, Right. And this is what Christians have been trying. This is what Christians have been trying to do, is to learn how to do this. And if Christians can do this as a spiritual family, if we can learn to disagree and learn to get along and still love, even while claiming that something is right, something is wrong, if we can do that, then we can offer that to other people around us. We can offer that to the world around us. So I want, to, I want to look at a couple of concepts this morning. There's a, there's a concept, um, what we could call cultural pluralism. Cultural pluralism. And cultural pluralism actually has a very noble goal. I think it's a very uh, valid thing, which is to say this. Every person is worthy of respect, and every person has a right to express their beliefs. I'm actually 100% on board with that. Every person is worthy of respect. Every person has a right to express their beliefs. This is cultural pluralism. Now, what we often do, and this is where it kind of becomes silly, is in order to ensure this noble ideal, we talk as though we believe in something that's more like metaphysical pluralism. I would say that this is different. Metaphysical pluralism, not that everybody has the right to their belief or the right to express their belief, but rather metaphysically... We believe that everyone's beliefs are equally valid and true. And when you really dig down into this, this is, really becomes nonsense. becomes nonsensical. We're tempted to move to, in this direction, though, because it feels more progressive. It feels just, you know, more modern. It feels more, we're going to be more unified. It feels nicer. Um, it feels like it's going to bring us closer together, you know, to say all of our beliefs are equally valid and true. Um, you can have that religion, you can believe that thing, and, and you might believe this religion over here, but it's okay, it's all basically the same thing, it's all equally true, they're all paths leading up the same mountain. Have you heard this? This is, um, this is probably the most common metaphor I hear when I'm, when I'm in a discussion with my pluralistic friends, when we're talking, this is what, the, they'll say, Scott, you have to understand, there is a mountain, and ultimate reality is at the top of this mountain. It's on the peak. And then there are many paths up the mountain, and each person may be on one of these paths. And what they mean to say is is that there is no one ultimate exclusive view of truth. You know, it's like Google Maps. You pull up Google Maps to get you home right now. What do you find? You're going to find three routes, aren't you? It's going to have the little routes, and you get a choice if you want to take the scenic route or you want to get there faster, right? So, so they say, well, this is, what, this is what religion is. It's basically Google Maps. Um, take the route you want. Everyone is equally right. Um, 
Now, if you ask my wife when we're traveling, she will tell you which one is right. And she will tell me when I am very wrong, just intrinsically wrong. She will tell me. And she's usually right about it, usually. Um, but, but people will say, you know, every path is right. So don't waste your time trying to convert anyone from their path to yours. Don't do what these Christians do and say, which is, we want everybody to follow Jesus. Because really, that's just a lateral move from one equally valid path to another equally valid path. So why are you trying to convert anybody? It's a lateral move. Now, I have to say, this analogy has like a very, it has a simple elegance to it. I, I, I like it. It's fascinating to me. And I would love to buy into it. I really would. If I could just turn my brain off and soak in the wonderful oneness of it all, I, I, would, I could really get into this. But there's a huge, huge flaw in the logic of this. And what's interesting to me is it really exposes something about the, the person who is arguing for it. This is interesting. See, the person who's using this analogy, what they're saying is everyone in the world is on one of these paths up the mountain. But what this person doesn't come out and say is that they are assuming they have a bird's eye view of the paths that nobody else actually has. They have the bird's eye view. They assume, well, everyone else is climbing this mountain, but me, I can hover back out of the picture like a prophet and tell you what you don't know. Hmm. To which I want to respond, that is fascinating if it's true. If it's true, but I have to ask, how did you get off the mountain? (laughs) Right? How did you get off the mountain? How did you get to hover back and over it all? And what is your source for truth? What's your source for truth? See, understand, this is what is called an assertion. And and never forget, assertion is very different from an argument. Okay? An argument is a case that you build with evidence towards towards to make a to make a point. This is an assertion. It's built on just what we kind of feel, what we kind of want it to be. There's no evidence to it at all. Nobody's floating above the mountain to tell us. You're just saying, here's what I believe, which makes it no different from most religions. Um, For instance, you don't even know if the God at the top of the mountain is good. He might be a real jerk, right? Uh, Maybe maybe the God at the top of the mountain doesn't even want you climbing his mountain, right? Maybe he is the flying spaghetti monster, and he's just telling everybody, get off my mountain, right? (laughs) And he's hurling metaphysical meatballs at people to try to get, you know, maybe that's what death is. You got hit by a meatball. (laughs) How do you know that's not true, right? Um, Why? Why do you believe every religion is heading to a good place? Maybe some are heading to a good place. Maybe maybe some are heading to, to heaven. Maybe some are heading to hell. How do you know? How do you know that some of these paths don't lead to some hopeless dead end or off a cliff and they got to start over? Right? How, how do you have this revelatory knowledge that other people don't have? How do you know that God's even still at the top of the mountain? Right? Maybe he got tired of waiting, and he came down into the valley to mix with the people. Right? Maybe he came down there and started spreading the word how to get to his real mountain over here. And maybe he told those people, hey, spread the word, because all these other people are, are cl- wasting their time climbing up the wrong mountain. What if that happened 2,000 years ago? That's where you go, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> See, there's a lot of assumptions. There's a lot of assumptions that goes into the all paths leads up the mountain idea. 
And usually the person making the assumption assumes that they see something that everyone else in the world doesn't see. So the next time someone says to you, well, I think all paths lead to the same place, you say, great, how do you know that? How do you know that? What ultimate truth makes you say that? Who are you listening to? What evidence do you base this on? Who has revealed this to you? Or do you claim to speak on behalf of ultimate reality? Are you trying to start your own religion? I don't know if I want to join, right? Do you all have coffee? Is there free donuts? Right? So, now, another analogy uh, people use is something written, by, uh, written about by Tim Keller in his book, uh, The Reason for God. Such a great book. If you haven't read it, just leave right now and go read it. It's, it's so good. Um, it's the analogy, I'm sure many of you heard of this. It's the blind man and the elephant. The blind man and the elephant. How, how many have heard of this? Raise your hand. Okay. So about half of us. So the, the way it goes, it kind of starts like this. There's a, there's a bunch of blind men, and imagine that they came across an elephant, and each one of them grabbed the elephant of a different, at a different area. And they were asked to describe what is an elephant like. And based on their experience of the part of the elephant that they're at, they come up with this completely different understanding of what the elephant is, right? And so the one person feels the trunk, and he says, ah, oh, the elephant is like a snake, right? And someone else feels the, the ear and says, no, the elephant is like a carpet. And someone feels the trunk and says, no, the elephant is like a spear. And someone has his arms around the leg and says, no, the elephant is like a great tree, and someone else has the tail, and they say, no, the elephant is like a rope, a very smelly rope. Right? <laughs> and so this is what, and, and, and the idea here, the pluralistic idea here is that this is actually what religion is. This is what religion is. There, there's an ultimate reality, and we can't really say that any religion is wrong, you know, because they're all partially at least right. They're all partially right. They're moving towards that grand, full, ultimate reality. And so we learn to appreciate every religion equally. No religion has the full view. And each religion brings its own beautiful section of the truth. Again, can I say how much I love this idea? I do. The, the lover of perspective in me just thinks this is, this is so cool. I love the idea of different people bringing to the table some different part, some different aspect of this grander thing that's greater than all of us and, and bringing it all together. It's super cool. It's super cool. But can you see the same false reasoning? The person who uses this analogy assumes that everyone else in the world is blind, but they can see. Everyone's blind, but they can see. They, they assume there's only one elephant in the room. There might be a couple. There might be an elephant and a hyena. You don't know what you're grabbing. Um, they, they assume that while the world is blind, we sit back with supernatural sight, somehow, miraculously, knowing the whole picture. We hover above, and we know what's going on. In an attempt to sound inclusive, do you, do you see how actually exclusive it is. Do you see how it forces over everyone else's view, their view, which was the very thing about religion they claim to be offended by, right? And they, so they haven't improved on the situation at all. They say, I know you think this, but you're blind, right? We, however, see. We have no evidence, mind you. It's just what we really want to be true. So in the end, this belief becomes actually far more arrogant and exclusive and snobbish than any particular faith, doesn't it? Because it passes judgment 
over all faiths, while ironically establishing a new faith, which is exactly what it does. It's exactly what has happened. If you've ever heard of Baha'i, that's kind of basically what Baha'i religion is. Yeah, we're all just grabbing a different part of the elephant. So here's the thing. We have, to, we have to establish this. We all have exclusive beliefs. You can't have belief without it being exclusive. The person who says all religions are blind, but, I only, see, but, but only I see the whole thing, they're giving you an exclusivist belief system. Uh, they're saying, I am right, others are not as right as I am, which is the intrinsic meaning of belief. I am right, and others are not as right as I am. So, so because it is impossible not to have exclusive beliefs, unless you're a vegetable. It's impossible. So what I'd really like to do today, I want to move past this silly idea of, of metaphorical pluralism. Plural, that's hard to say. Pluralism. Rather, what we, what we should be doing is, is seeking to find the beliefs that lead to the most inclusive, the most loving, the most embracing, the most grace, the most kindness. We want to find the beliefs that lead us to truth. Truth. And that, we are convinced, is the way of Jesus. Is that an exclusive belief? Yes. You bet. Because all beliefs are, by their very nature, exclusive. Now, are all human beings worthy of respect? Absolutely. Are all human beings, should they have the right to, to have and express their beliefs? Absolutely. That's, that's, you're right is in the nobility of being a human. If I'm a Christian and you're not, I can still love you. We can still engage. We can still talk and I can dialogue with you. In fact, I have often said, I believe, I firmly support your right to be wrong, right? <laughs> firmly, I'll fight for that right of your right to be wrong. But it's silly to say that a wrong answer is just as, just as valid as the right answer. Um, I could set out right now on a road heading west, a road heading east, a road heading north. But only one of those roads is going to get me to Dallas. Though I don't know for the life of me why anybody would want to be on that road. <laughs> right? Um, but, but, but it's silly to say that all three directions are equally valid if you have a goal in mind. A better question for us to ask is, where are your beliefs headed? And that's what we should be asking each other. Where are our beliefs headed? Where are they leading you? Are they leading you to greater love? Or are they just leading you to some self-absorbed implosion within yourself? See, we believe that Jesus, and Jesus alone, actually holds the answer to bringing us together into relationship with God and with each other. Jesus. So when someone says, why do you insist on following Jesus? And why, why do you try to get other people to follow Jesus? I would answer, A, because we all follow something. We all follow something, or someone. And B, only Jesus leads us to a God of pure love and to a salvation of pure grace and to a way of pure peace. Only Jesus leads us here. And I can't find a better worldview out there to stake my life on. Jesus, following Jesus, always leaves the world around me better than I find it. Following Jesus will always enable you to leave the world better than you find it. Now, let's fully acknowledge something here that we understand throughout history that there are points that the church has gone way off the rails. 
Absolutely. Has abandoned the teachings of Jesus, has gotten arrogant and puffed up with pride. But that's never the fruit of following Jesus. That's always the fruit of abandoning the teachings of Jesus. That's exactly what that is. And the teaching of Jesus always calls the church back again to pure love, to pure grace, and to pure peace. So I want to unpack these three things this morning in the, in the time we have left. Number one, only Jesus shows us a God of pure love. Now, as we kind of hinted to at before, this, this begs the question, how do we know that the God at the top of the mountain is a good God? How do we know? Well, some people might say, we'll just look at nature. Nature is so wonderful and all its perfection in nature and all this kind of thing. But if you look at nature closely, it's pretty ambiguous, I have to say. Um, you know, you could say whatever deity is behind nature is very creative, is very inventive. Sunsets are beautiful. Puppies are cute. Um, there's a whole lot of violence. There's a lot of killing. Nature is not a nice place. Uh, if you're an animal living in the wild, it's kill or be killed, right? We, we even say, well, that's just nature, right? Um, so what reflects the heart of God? Does he love beauty? Do you see God's heart in a flower? Do you see God's heart in an ant colony, right? Super efficient, but very ruthless. Where do you see God's heart? So the jury is kind of still out there to, to just worship uh, God or, or to think you've, you've got, you understand God based on nature. What the human race needed, and God understood this, what he, the human race needed was divine intervention. We needed an incarnation of God himself into the world. See, Jesus shows us a picture of a God that is pure love in a way that no other religious leader or guru or prophet has ever done. Pure love in a way that even nature itself doesn't show us. It doesn't reveal it. Jesus claims, and, and his followers agreed, he claimed that he is God, showing us in human form what God is actually like. So now we know what this ultimate reality is like. See, the world is often a very unlovely place, right? Human beings can often be very uh, cruel. And so we needed a flesh and blood demonstration of the heart of God once and for all. And so God, in his infinite grace and, and just such humility, he opens himself up to us. This is so unheard of among all prophets and gods of the world. He opens his chest to us and shows us his heart, and his heart is Jesus. And, and so for us, it's through that lens, it's that filter of Jesus that we can understand everything else. We understand that God is love by looking at Jesus. And when we understand that, when we look at that, we not only want to be embraced by that love, but we want to share that love with everybody around us when we get a, a real glimpse of it. You know, the early church in that first century, they were the most sociologically inclusive group the world had ever seen. Uh, and it, it's just a fact. At a time when other religions would, would kill you if you didn't practice their brand of religion or, or put their emperor at the top of all your religions, those early Christians found that Jesus led them to become incredibly, tremendously and inclusive. It was the only group back then where you had, on the planet, where you had different races, 
Different nationalities, different socioeconomic classes, all mixing it up together as brother and sister. This was unheard of in the world. And, and you have this massive love movement that starts. These people that are wanting to embrace and bring people, people closer and, and to serve other people, even their enemies. This is a divine thing. The way of Jesus led them to become increasingly loving, increasingly embracing. Right? So the Apostle John, he writes this in his letter later in life. John writes in 1 John 3.16, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. He says later in next chapter, same letter, next chapter, he says, Whoever does not love does not even know God, because God is love. That's a bold statement. This is how God showed his love among us. So he's saying, this is how God showed it. We're not just making this up. We're not just guessing. We see it. God God showed us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Verse 10, it says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God But if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. So these are beautiful words here, but he's not just wishing them into being. He's not just saying, I kind of want this to be true because it sounds good. He can say this with truth and authority because he has encountered Christ. He's encountered God himself. He sees the evidence now of this God of love flowing through all these different people who have maybe very little else in common, but now they've come together and they're loving each other. They're laying on their lives for each other. This, this is why we want everybody to join us in following Jesus. Number two, only Jesus offers us salvation by pure grace. Pure grace. The gift of salvation, this gift of grace, it means that Jesus says, I want to embrace you. I want to save you, to bring you with me, and to bring you with me and my Father, knowing that you can't live good enough on your own. You can't impress God with your perfection. I want to give you as a gift what you are unable to achieve, no matter how religious you become. This is what pure grace is. And so for Christians, grace is actually a humbling factor. It should be, right? Because Christ followers, what we're saying is we are here because we are people who believe that we are messed up without God, that we are messed up and we don't trust ourselves. We don't trust that we have, we're going to get to heaven on our own merits, right? Um, I, I know all the imperfections. Well, I probably don't even know all of them, but I know many of the imperfections in my life, right? And, and I know how much I need that grace. I know that I need to plead for grace. On that judgment day, I have to throw myself on the mercy of the court. I, I know I will not be able to stand before God proudly and say, well, I'm here because I was really awesome, right? I was really something else, so... Just go ahead and let me in. Just like everyone else, I will be on my knees thanking the Lord for his grace. Thank you for grace. Because I don't deserve to be here. 
That's what the Christian movement was in that first century. It's what it is. It's all these sinners. It's all these outcasts and people who think, I don't think I am uh, moral enough to deserve heaven. So salvation by grace is a very humbling thing because it's the omission that you're not all that, right? Right. We see this grace in how Jesus related to sinners, how he related to outcasts, and how he related even to the the so-called righteous people who didn't get along with him very well because they didn't really see their need of him in this message of grace. They didn't see this. One story happens after Jesus calls Matthew uh, to come to be his disciple. Now, Matthew was, was hated in his community. He was a tax collector, considered a traitor to his own people. Um, and so Matthew invites all his friends over to this dinner party. So you can just imagine, this is a bunch of sinful, white-collar criminals, outcasts in their own circles, hated in their community, and they're all coming together to Matthew's house, and then all kinds of other sinners start to show up to the party. And Jesus and his disciples are there, and uh, we read this. It's actually found in all three of our, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, three of the Gospels. He says, when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why do you all eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Right? The te- they're like, I, I thought you're, trying, you're here to show us how righteous you are. Why are you hanging out with this riffraff? Right? And it says that on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. For go and learn what this means. I desire mercy not sacrifice. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus here, he quotes, he's, he's quoting the ancient prophet Hosea. And he says, uh, go and study this out. He said, see, go and learn what this means. It's one of the only times he ever says this. He says, go and study this out. You've missed something along the way, you religious experts who ought to know your Bible really well. Go and study the words of Hosea. If, and if you still think that you're so perfect, you don't need God's grace, I'm not here for you then. I, I got nothing to say to you. See, he, he, he doesn't even try to argue with them back and forth. He just says, you're healthy? Uh, then I can't help you because I'm here for the sick. So Christianity at its heart is, is a faith for people who are willing to admit, I am not so righteous. I do not have it all together. I need a doctor. Tim Keller puts this so brilliantly. He says this, The gospel is the only faith system that leads you to expect that people who don't agree with you must be better than you. Oh, you don't think you need grace? You don't need a savior? He must be a better person than I am. Because I sure do. I definitely do. See, Christianity, when it's done right, and it's not always done right, when it's done right, it ought to always lead us to a position of humility. Not self-righteousness, not snobbishness, right? Humility. Which is sadly the, the opposite picture many folks have of Christianity. And again, it's not because we're following the teachings of Jesus, it's because we've departed from the teachings of Jesus when that happens. It ought not be that way. Uh, Lee Strobel, many have heard of him, the author, he has this brilliant analogy. He calls the country club analogy of Christianity. He says, let's pretend there are two country clubs, and this one over here uh, admits people who have earned their membership. It's very expensive to get in. You've got to obtain superior wisdom. 
to get in. You've got to fulfill a whole list of demands. You have to fulfill a, even a list of spiritual requirements to get in. And despite their best efforts, there's just a lot of people who won't make the grade. They're going to be excluded from that. And that's what other religions are saying by teaching that people have to work their way to God. They have to earn their way to God. It's all about your, your karma. The second country club over here says, hey, anybody who wants in can come because Jesus has already paid for your membership. He's paid for it. Show up. All you got to do is show up. Uh, rich or poor, black or white, regardless of your, your ethnic heritage or where you live, we would love to include you in our country club. Entry isn't based on your qualifications, but only on accepting Jesus' invitation. He's already paid for it, so we'll leave the matter to you. You decide. But remember, we will never, ever turn you away if you seek admittance. He says that's what Christianity is like. And he says, now which country club is being snobbish? Christians aren't putting on airs. We aren't saying we're better than everyone else. As one Christian put it, we are just beggars telling other beggars where to find food. Hallelujah. So Jesus leads us toward this pure grace. Number three, only Jesus leads us in the way of pure peace. The way of pure peace. Now, uh, any of you have turned on the news or you know, went to your website, looked at the news in the last 50 years. <laughs> no, the world is not a peaceful place. The world is messed up. And let's face it, uh, as is pointed out increasingly today by, by uh, secularists and outspoken atheists, religion is just making the problem worse on the planet. Religion is absolutely making the problem worse of violence, the problem of violence. It's not solving anything. Religion isn't solving anything. It's making it worse. Every religion is at war with some other, in some part of the world with some other religion, right? In, in parts of the world, you'll see Hindu versus Buddhist, and you'll see um, Muslim versus Christian. You'll see one sect of Christian versus another sect of Christian, one sect of Muslim versus another sect of Muslim. The religion, somewhere around the world, there is fighting going on, and much of it is, is religious-based. And so religion isn't solving anything. And, and the uncomfortable truth is religion today can seem dangerous to your health. And that's what a lot of these secularists are pointing out. Religion, it's dangerous to your health. It almost seems as if human nature is like the worst possible Petri dish to mix religion in because of our nature. Religious fervor plus human nature right? I mean, doesn't it seem like that sometimes? And, and think about it. As a human being, you were already, you were, already, you were born prone to judgmentalism, to bigotry, to violence and aggression. And having a God on your side just makes it worse because now you have this infinite rage at your back. That's the state of religion because you're justified all the more now to do whatever you want because you've got your God on your side, egging you on. And so secularists today are becoming increasingly outspoken about this. Folks like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris, famous guys. They're saying, we actually, these guys are coming out and saying, we need to become evangelistic against religion. We have to call people to reject religion and come to secularism, come to atheism, to abandon faith, abandon God in order to save the planet. This is their, their case. It's do, it's do or die. Because now it's not just killing on a small scale that's possible. Extremists have the ability now to wipe out the earth. 
in the name of God. And so someday someone's going to try to destroy the planet in the name of their God. So they said, we have to call people to this cool-headed secular atheism. Now, uh, I think one of the most uh, entertaining pitch from these guys, it's known as the New Atheism School, saying it's time for religion to end, come on over to atheism. It was given a few years ago by a man named uh, Bill Maher. Some of you have heard of Bill Maher. He had, he had a talk show. Um, he's on the college speaking circuit. He's written books. But he also produced this documentary. It was really kind of an agendamentary uh, called uh, uh, Religious. Uh, religious. That's what it is. Religious. And it's, it's a fascinating thing to watch, I have to tell you. It's, it's fascinating. I won't make you watch it. Um, I watched it for you. So, um, but parts of it are, are great film, uh, and they're fun. It's, it, I, I couldn't disagree more with, with uh, most of it, but um, I also couldn't agree more with some of the p- points he makes. And in his final culminating appeal, the whole movie comes to this, this crescendo, this passionate pitch he makes. It's full of emotion. And I'm going to summarize what his statement in a nutshell, because it's rather long. But what he basically says is this. Religion is dangerous because it increases our certainty. And when we are certain about something, we will make radical decisions regardless of the cost. And the antidote to this dangerous certainty is to replace it with doubt. And of this, I am certain. (laughs) Of this, I have no doubt. Because the certainty of religion leads to arrogance rather than humility. And you need to learn to be humble, like I obviously am. (laughs) So that's, that's kind of his pitch in a nutshell. See, here's the challenge. What I'm left with here, we're left with the same problem we started with, right? I'm left with going, Bill, we don't know if this is true. How do we know what you're saying is true? You're saying you have this view of the elephant, of the mountain, that the rest of us don't have. Maybe you're right. Maybe you're not. You're not basing this on any authority because you don't believe God told you. You don't believe in God. So it's not based on anything other than simply what you believe, what you want to be true. What do we do? What do we do with our actual experience that we now have with officially atheistic societies? Were they wonderful meccas of peace and tranquility? Look at the Soviet Union. Look at China. Resulted in the slaughter of millions of people, right? And the wholesale removal of basic human rights. Anybody who is deemed a threat to the state, how can you blame all the violence of the world just on religion? I say there might be a, there's a problem in the world, but it's human nature. It's human nature. And what if one of these religions, just one, what if just one out of all the rest of them were true? And of course, secularism, by, by definition, creates this different problem when you, when you go to that place, which is this. Now there is no objective moral guideline. There is nobody who can play referee, right? Um, it's basically like my 12-year-old and my 8-year-old, and I just say, go at it. Whoever wins, you were right, right? That's, that would be a dangerous thing. There's no objective morality. There's no objective reason to call one thing good and the other thing bad. All morality becomes subjective. All ethics are subjective then. 
Meaning, uh, you know, whatever the majority of the mob calls right is right. That's what you get. Might makes right. Survival of the fittest. That's the way of nature. So we're back to nature. Because there's no external voice to appeal to. There's just nothing out there. There's nothing greater than ourselves and, and our own present whims. What we want to call right today. We might call something else right tomorrow. But that'll be right. All morality. See, here's what we have to understand. All morality inside of us. That voice inside of us that tells us what's right and wrong. It's completely subjective. It's completely subjective. It, it's totally just made up. It's not worth a cup of coffee. That morality, it, unless, unless there is something personal that abides in us all. There's a man by the name of Epimenides. A Greek, he was a Greek moral philosopher. He lived 600 years before Jesus. And he said this. For in him, he meant the ultimate reality, the divine God. He said this, in him we live and move and have our being. Epimenides said this. Anybody ever heard this? The Apostle Paul considered this statement so brilliant, he quoted it back to the Greeks 600 years later when he was trying to win them over for Jesus. In him, that ultimate reality, that, that God, whoever he is, we live and we move and we have our being. See, all morality is subjective. But, but there is a person in whom we all live and move and have our being. And this person, Jesus tells us, is pure love, is pure grace, and he calls us to the way of pure peace like no other religion like no other philosophy, atheist, secularist, deistic, whatever. There's no philosophy out there that calls us to this way like Jesus. He says, Jesus says to us in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now that sounds extreme to us. We read that, that's, that's pretty extreme. That's the way it is. We all live by that normally. I see it on Twitter, Facebook, TV, wherever you go. This is how we live. Our culture says, listen, you, you, you respect me, I'll respect you. But you diss me, I'll be all up in your grill. Right? I mean, I'll love you, you love me, I'm all live and let live. But you come against me, I will cut you. Right? That's human culture. That's us at our best. That's human beings at our very best, right? And Jesus comes along and says, guys, that's not good enough. It's not good enough because, see, we all perceive people crossing us all the time. You probably perceive somebody crossing you this morning in the wrong way, right? And, and so if we live by this, that just leads to violence. Jesus says, but I tell you, love your enemies Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Love your enemies. He goes on to say here that this, this is how you become like God. 
And it's the only time Jesus talks about not just becoming like himself, but becoming like God, becoming children of God. The ultimate reality says you'll be his children. You'll be the children of God when you learn this way of peace. An absolute authority that calls us to embracing, calls us to generosity, calls us to be gracious, loving, tolerant of things, of wrongs done to us. That is what Jesus calls us to. This is the way of Jesus. And I am convinced it is the only solution to the world. This is the way of Jesus. There's not a political solution. There's not a religious solution. All the atheists out there of the New Atheism School are absolutely right. Religion will kill you. Religion's not the answer. It's Jesus touching our hearts. It's Jesus doing something to a man and a woman's heart. Changing us internally from the inside out. Changing our very DNA. We call it being born again. That is the only answer to the world's problems. And that is why we desperately and dearly call all people to join us in following Jesus. We believe that in this message of Jesus is the power to change the world and to change your life. Amen? Or, or to put it simply, we follow Jesus because he makes life better and he makes you better at life. Hallelujah. Let's pray as our prayer partners are coming forward. Hallelujah. Father God, we love you so much. We thank you, Lord God, that you call us. You call us towards pure love. You show us a God that is pure love. You show us salvation that is by pure grace. We thank you, Father God, and you lead us to a new path. It is the path of pure peace, Father God. Help us to be more like Jesus. There's nothing better out there, Father God. I thank you, Lord God. That as we, as we keep Jesus in, in, in front of us and we look to you, Lord God, we will leave the world a better place than we find it, Lord God. Help us to not get off path, off track, and start following our own things, Father God. Help us to not be puffed up with pride, but to remain in humility, Lord God, so that we can be people of love, so that we can be people of relationship, Lord God. We, we desire you, Lord God. We're desperate for you, Lord God. We can't do this on our own. We need you in our life, Father God. We need you showing us the way. We need you at the center of our life. We thank you, Father God, for your goodness and your mercy. I thank you for every person here, Lord God. I thank you for those who are, who are here and they've already given their life to you, Lord God, and they're sold out to you. God, keep them, keep them strong, encourage them today, Father God. For those who are seeking you, who are, who are still wondering about you and, and they're curious about you, Father God, I thank you that you will, in your time, just draw them closer and closer to you, not into a religion, but into a relationship with your son, Jesus. I thank you for that, Father. Thank you for helping us be disciples that go make disciples not in an arrogant way or a pushy way but just help us to be people of love to be people of grace to be people of peace wherever we go we pray in jesus name amen amen i thank you guys so much for your time today and uh, if there's anyone here and you're here today and you need something you need someone to pray with you about something you got something going on in your life you got a struggle that you're going through i encourage you come up here and pray these are some awesome these are prayer warriors up here and they would love to pray with you they'll keep it very confidential and they'll pray with you it's beautiful if you are here today and you're like 
I am ready to, I want, I want Jesus in my life. I need to be part of this train. Come on up and let them pray with you and they'll guide you into the next steps there, okay? Love you guys. Y'all have the best week you've ever had. We will see you Wednesday night. Bye-bye.